Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Now today, oh, it's Sibsy today, and today it's going to feel like it's naughty because it's going to be so calorie-packed and creamy. You won't actually put on weight, but it's going to be tasty. Let's pray. My Father, I pray that you would show us who you are more clearly, how kindly you deal with us in your dear Son, and so draw our hearts to love you, enjoy you more and more than all others. And I pray then that people may see our great love for you and be drawn as we speak of you warmly to you. Amen. Well, welcome back to Matters of the Heart. Um, Today we're going to be looking at um, Richard Sibbs, who you, I guess, most of you probably never even heard of. That's fine. I'm not expecting you to have heard of him. We're going to be, he's a Puritan. I'll tell you a little bit about him. And he's going to be helping us think through how to grow in our love for Christ. Um, now, I haven't really introduced our lovely assistants so far. We, we had um, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin. Um, but I want to tell you a little bit more about Sibs today. And that's partly because he's really not very well known at all. Um, and it's partly because Sibs really was a walking embodiment of love for Christ. Can I, um, here we are. Um, someone just showed me a tweet earlier which said that I should dress as each of the theologians each day <laughs> to help. So whoever did that, I, I was looking for this get up, but um, yeah, it ain't going to happen. Now, um, Sibs, as you can tell, he was a rough contemporary of Shakespeare's that kind of time. And in fact, Shakespeare was one of the reasons why we tend to go boo the Puritans, because Shakespeare did not like Puritans. But I think we'll see with Sibsey that um, he's really, if you think boo the Puritans, and some of them could be a bit dull, but yeah, Richard's cool. He became known as the heavenly Dr. Sibs. And that was because, it wasn't because of any kind of cold aloofness, like he was sort of uh, distantly otherworldly. It was because of his sheer loving kindness, because of his good-natured amiability. And still today, uh, you read his recorded sermons, and they just glow with sunny warmth. He was a man who clearly enjoyed knowing God. And still today, I mean, this is a long time later, 400 years later, his relish is still infectious, if you read him. He spoke of the living God as a life-giving, warming sun who delights to spread his beams and his influence in things, to make all things fruitful, such a Goodness is in God, he said, as in a fountain, as in continually pouring out goodness, or in the breast that loves to ease itself of milk, the full breast that's bursting with nutritious goodness. And because he knew God to be such an overflowing fountain of goodness and love, 
that made him the most attractive model of God-likeness. Because, of course, we all become like what we worship, right? Do you remember, this is sort of um, Isaiah 44 territory. Do you remember Isaiah's talking about the idols? And if you worship a wooden block that cannot hear, it's deaf, dumb, blind, then spiritually you become like that. You become spiritually deaf, dumb, blind. You become like what you worship. But become like this God, who is this fountain of goodness. Well, let me hand over to Dickie again. He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God that are like him, they have a communicative, as in they communicate, they diffuse a goodness. They have this goodness that loves to spread itself. They love to be kind as God is. In other words, knowing that God is love made him profoundly loving as a man. Now, Richard, um, he was never married, but it was clear that he had a, well, an extraordinary ability for cultivating warm and lasting friendships. Um, and his knowledge of God clearly transformed him from all accounts in his day into a man, a pastor, and a preacher of just magnetic geniality. He was just known for being very amiable. Um, Charles Spurgeon once said, I mentioned Charles Spurgeon yesterday, Charles Spurgeon, 19th century um, London preacher. And Charles Spurgeon once told his students who were learning to preach, he said said to them, you know, I love a minister whose face invites me to be his friend. The sort of face on which you read the sign, welcome, and not beware of the dog. <laughs> now, that's, that's exactly the sort of thing that would describe Sibs. In fact, um, you see with all these um, pictures I've been showing you, these dead guys, they all look a little bit somber, don't they? And in fact, it's not just theologians look somber. If you look at portraits of dead guys, generally they look quite serious because you have to pose for a portrait for a long time. But... In looking at 17th century portraits, I found one 17th century portrait. I think it's, no, maybe, the, maybe there are two. Um, one which shows a person with a real sparkle in their eye. It's a sit-down portrait, a real sit-down portrait rather than a mock-up. And it's Richard Sibbs. And to capture in a sitting-down portrait a twinkle in the eye really shows something about the guy himself, that he, he was a loving great-hearted man. Uh, He's not very well-known today, but in his own day, Sibs was enormously influential. Um, In his latter years, he managed to hold three of the most prominent um, preaching posts, anyway, in England. He was simultaneously master of what was then Catherine Hall Cambridge, uh, is now Cats College, Cambridge, Um, He was also what was called a lecturer, which was basically not quite the vicar, but the regular preacher at Holy Trinity Church, just behind the marketplace in Cambridge, um, where um, they had to incorporate an extra gallery to, um, to accommodate the extra numbers that he drew. And he was a preacher in London at the um, Gray's Inn, which was one of the London inns of courts, where a lot of prominent politicians would come to hear him. 
Now, Sibs, a phrase he repeated often in his sermons is this. He loved to say, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And you could just chew on that one. Isn't that great? There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you, my friend. When you look at your sinfulness, no, there is more grace in Christ. And so as he preached, he always sought to win his listeners to Christ, to draw their eyes to Christ, because this, he believed, was the duty of ministers. He said, ministers woo for Christ. They open the riches, beauty, honor, all that is lovely in him. In fact, he said, one main end of our calling, the ministry, is to lay open and unfold the unsearchable riches of Christ, to dig up the mine, thereby to draw the affections of those that belong to God to Christ. Now, he's talking about ministers, but that could be a good thing for all Christians, surely. That as we want to make Christ know, we woo people to Christ, we lay out the unsearchable riches of Christ. And for Sibs, the result was preaching so winsome that struggling believers began to call him the honey-mouthed, the sweet-dropper. And apparently, hardened sinners were said to deliberately avoid going to hear Sibs preach for fear that they would get converted. That's quite a reputation to have, isn't it? Um, let, let me give you um, uh, the record of one guy's experience, a guy called Humphrey Mills. He said this. Uh, it was quite typical of um, reactions to Sibs' ministry. Mills said, I was for three years together wounded for sins and under a sense of my corruptions, which were many, and I followed sermons, pursuing the means, as in Bible reading and so on, I was constant in duties and doing, looking for heaven that way. And then I was so precise for outward formalities that I censured all to be reprobates that wore their hair anything long. I assume he's talking about guys here. And not short above their ears. Whoa, not Christian if you've got long hair. Or that wore great ruffs. And gorgets or fashions and follies. And yet I was distracted in my mind, wounded in conscience. Of course he was seeking heaven that way. I wept often and bitterly and prayed earnestly, but yet had no comfort. Till I heard that sweet saint, Dr. Sibs, by whose means and ministry I was brought to peace and joy in my spirit. His sweet, what was the content? Soul-melting gospel sermons won my heart and refreshed me much. For by him I saw and had much of God and was confident in Christ and could overlook the world. My heart held firm, resolved my desires now all heavenward. That was the effect. What I want to do is I'm going to take you through a little bit, but I I want to leave you with something, and I'm going to leave you with this. This is a sermon called The Tender Heart that Richard Sibbs preached, it's just become available. It's, in fact, you can only just get it from next week. So order it from banneroftruth.org. It is 
Um, sorry, I meant to bring a copy of it. I've got the one copy in Wales. I know, I know, this is my claim to fame. And it's, it's a tiny little thing, absolutely tiny. You can read it in, you know, over one coffee. Seriously, check out The Tender Heart from Richard Sibbs. Get it from banneroftruth.org. It'll just give you a great, great taste to take away with you. Uh, in fact, I dare say, I think I dare go so far as to say, read that. I think it will change your life. I'm actually going to be that strong. It's extraordinarily good theology. It's just one little sermon. It basically, um, The Tender Heart is a sermon on 2 Chronicles 34 where the Lord is said to hear King Josiah's prayer because Josiah's heart was tender, soft to the Lord. Um, And uh, anyway, it's been um, unavailable for ages, and it's just come out, Banner of Truth, with a um, forward by a very handsome fan of Sibs. Um, Now, read that. That's not the reason I'm plugging it. It's great. Read it on a Tuesday morning in the rain. It'll feel like a little trip to Barbados. It's great, great stuff. It's the sunshine of the gospel. But the tender heart, that title and that sermon gets in a nutshell what Sibs was all about. In his ministry, Sibs always sought to get under the superficial layer of his reader's his listeners' behavior and deal with their hearts, with their affections, their desires, the things that drive behavior. Now, for Sibs, this wasn't a superficial matter. It wasn't like he had his theology and then this was a nice way of packaging it. He saw, actually, no, 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 dealing with people's hearts actually is pastoral ministry that works out one of the most profound insights of the Reformation, which he was a part. You see, what was happening in in Roman Catholicism in his day, growing in holiness basically equated with changing your habits and your external behavior. Yes, so change your behavior is what's really important. We'll, We'll see a bit more of this tomorrow. For... The reformers, they're saying that's absolutely pointless trying to simply change your behavior. In fact, you won't be able to do it very well anyway. But even if you do, you'll just cultivate hypocrisy. What you need to do, more than changing your behavior, way more, is you need to change your heart. Your heart needs to turn. And so Sibs is seeking to deal with, his, with people's hearts and again and again in his sermons, Sib speaks of, well, interestingly, both Catholic priests and Protestant pastors who, whatever they were saying their theology was, he was seeing so many of them are actually operating as if the root of our problem lies in our behavior. Right? So that... What's the problem? We've done wrong things, so we need to start doing right things. But Sibs plums much, much deeper. He knew that the outward acts of sin are merely the manifestations of the inner desires of my heart. Yeah? So when I come out and do something wicked, 
I'm just expressing to the world what's actually going on in here. And if I simply try to alter my behavior without my heart being changed, what I actually do is I just have like a behavioral cloak covering up the cold viciousness in my heart, which actually becomes intensely dangerous because I'm thinking I'm growing in holiness because my behavior is changing when my heart's not changing at all. And Sibs would know if ministers try to operate like that, just changing the behavior of their people without dealing with their hearts, such a ministry is just going to be cruel to people. It's just going to be based on browbeating. Come on, do better. Yeah? You need to work harder. Your behavior needs to be better. But that's not how it was for Sibs. Let me give you a little bit of Sibs now. He says, when we are drawn to duties, to Christian things to do, with wrong motivation, whether it's for fear or for tradition or with any wrong motive, not from a new nature, that's not from the Spirit. That performance is not from the true liberty of the Spirit. For the liberty of the Spirit is when actions come off naturally without force of fear or hope or any other motive. A child needs no other motive to please his father. When he he knows he's a child of his loving father, it's natural, yeah? When a child knows he has a loving father who loves him, well, naturally he's drawn to love his father and respond to his father. But if his father's abusive and not kind, well, all sorts of other strange motivations start taking place in, in the child. And so what Sib sought to do is he sought to make his hearers know themselves to be children of the loving father so that they might naturally love him. Yeah? So it's sort of um, 1 John 4.19 again. We were seeing yesterday. We love because he first loved us. So so preach the gospel to people that the people know the love of God and they go, oh, I, I love such a God as that. Naturally. I'm not seeking to impress him. I actually love him. He's won my heart. I want him. Now, I'm just going to say before we really get in, Sibs was, he was widely, deeply, uh, both loved and respected in his day. But there is a challenge to some of this theology that can come up, and, and Sibs preempts it. The question can be this. Now, all this talk of affections, desires for the Lord, and he'll, he'll talk about tears for sin. Tears for sin. And he says, is this soppy Christianity? Well, he preempts that and preempts it with a pretty damning rebuke. He says, it is no weak. Well, he uses the word womanish. He's a man of his time. He's saying it's not a gender-specific thing or a weak thing to love the Lord like that. In fact, to suggest it is a weak thing is to reveal a repulsive cold-heartedness. A, a, a proud, faithless desire to be strong 
in ourselves. In fact, just flick with me to Romans 1, which I think says very much the same thing. Romans 1. And Romans 1, Paul talks about those who are given up to their sinful desires, and he reaches the climax of what that looks like in verse 31. He says, these people who are given over to their sinful desires become ultimately foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Heartless there means just without feeling, stony, cold-hearted. I, I wonder if you've ever actually shed tears for sin. And if you have, why? Uh, I have in two very different ways. I've shed tears for sin in a desperation way, just thinking, am I hell-bound for being such a sinner? So tears of terror. And I've shed tears for sin also when I've so known how magnificently kind Jesus is. And therefore, just how repulsive my sins are in the face of such kindness. That's the sort of thing Sibs is talking about. I mean, so seeing the kindness of Christ that, that our sin repulses us. Well, let's see a little bit of how that works. How Sibs is going to proclaim the love of Christ so that we might be one to love him. Okay, now I, this, I'm going to start with, I'm going to give you some, some bits from all over Sibs. This is actually a bit from the tender heart. Sibs says, sorry, that's a lot. Yeah, you can, you can, well, I'll read it for you anyway. Sibs says, it is not enough to have the heart broken. A part may be broken in pieces and yet be good for nothing. And so may a heart be through terrors and a sense of judgment. So you can just shatter people with the judgment of God. Now, he will preach judgment, and we'll see that coming up. But you can just shatter people and not actually do good. For, for the heart must is not then, therefore, like wax, pliable, but it must be melting. Tenderness of heart is wrought by an apprehension, a, a, a grasping, an, an appreciation of tenderness and love in Christ. A soft heart is made soft by the blood of Christ. E.g., preach the, the blood of Christ, Christ's bloody kindness, definitively shown on the cross. You see, such kindness, and that melts the heart. Many say that an adamant, now sorry, an adamant, this is a kind of mythical metal that just could not be melted. Even if you shove it in the sun, it won't melt. Um, many say that an adamant cannot be melted with fire but by blood. I cannot tell whether this be true or no. It's no, because it's mythical. But I'm sure nothing will melt the hard heart of man but the blood of Christ, the passion of our blessed Saviour. When a man considers of the love that God has showed him in sending of his Son, in doing such great things as he's done, in giving of Christ to satisfy his justice, see here, proclamation of justice, in, in the context of the gospel, in, to satisfy his justice in setting us free from hell, Satan, death. The consideration of this, with the persuasion that we actually benefit from this, melts the heart and makes it tender. So sin is about a coldness 
or hardness of heart. And a, a hardness which he says will therefore not actually even be able to feel its sin because it's just too, too solid. Cold to the Lord. So dutiful perhaps, but not delighting in him. But the work of the gospel is to warm our hearts, soften them. Let's see how he puts it here. Again, this is classic Sibsy imagery. He says, As when things are cold, we bring them to the fire to heat and melt. So bring we our cold hearts to the fire of the love of Christ. Consider we our sins against Christ and of Christ's love towards us, our sinners. Dwell upon this thought. Think what great love Christ has showed us. How little we've deserved. And this will make our hearts to melt and be as pliable as wax before the sun. If you would have this tender and melting heart, be always under the sunshine of the gospel. Isn't that great? If you want to be soft-hearted, to love the Lord, keep yourself under the sunshine of the gospel. It is. The, the, light, of, the light of God's word is sunshine, isn't it? It's, it's, it's light driving away darkness. It's good, warming, kind, enlightening light. And what Sibs is reflecting here is the Reformation's radical shift from medieval Roman Catholicism. See, sin is now a problem in the heart, not just in the behavior. The deeper problem. And so, here's the key. The solution to sin is not a behavioral one. The solution to sin is not my attempt to stop sinning. That won't work. In fact, fact, no, I just want you to take 30 seconds to discuss with your neighbor what is, why will that not work? What is my, by willpower, I will stop sinning? Why will that not stop sin? Just discuss with your neighbor. Just 30 seconds, not long. Okay, what do we got? Let's come back. What do we got? Why will just an act of my own willpower, I'll try to stop sinning. Why will that not actually stop me sinning? We're definitely not strong enough. Absolutely. We're born sinners. Exactly. Sin is not just behavior. So even if I'm curbing the behavior, I'm not actually cutting to the heart of the problem. Yeah. We're in Adam. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I want to sin. Yeah. Anything else? If you curb sin, yeah, so if, if I'm going to go, all right, I'm going to clamp down on the lying now. Hey, I've gone for 60 days without lying. Woo-hoo. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one more. Oh, <laughs> if it was that easy, if I could just get, right, I'll stop sinning. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Doosh. <laughs> Blown out the water. Nice one, yeah. Any others? Great reasons, yep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. That if I'm, I'm saying I can stop seeing, it's basically I'm turning in on myself and using my own strength. That, so, oh, I'm depending on myself. That's not faith, is it? It's the very opposite of faith. I'm not relying on God, I'm relying on myself. So, actually, it can be the worst act of sin. Instead, so the solution to sin is not 
just the attempt to live without sin. It is the gospel of God's free grace. And without that, all that's left is hypocritical externalism. Now, um, Sibs was writing um, around the time of the gunpowder plot when um, Roman Catholics tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament. And he writes this, he says, The Papists, after they've been at their superstitious devotion, lots of outward things, are fittest for powder plots and treasons because their hearts are so much more hardened. Now, where he's going with that is he's saying, look, if you've just been concentrating on external behavior, you're not dealing with your hearts. Your heart's just been hardening. Therefore, you will act in a hard-hearted way. That'll just come out. And so you might be very religious, but you don't love the Lord. Whereas those who are tender-hearted, they actually desire and grow in their desire for the Lord of salvation. Not just for salvation, but for the Lord of salvation himself. And only then, when a person is brought to love the Lord with a heartfelt sincerity, do they increasingly begin to hate their sin. Actually, to find it distasteful, instead of simply dreading God's punishment of it. Which is quite a difference. Now, a couple of observations here. First of all, isn't Sivs beautifully capturing the warmth and joy of hearty holiness? Isn't it an attractive model of holiness? We, we, we saw Edward's talking about God's holiness as a very attractive thing, as his beauty. Not his, not his aloofness, but his, his pure kindness. And here, our holiness, too, is a beautiful relational thing, enjoying, depending on loving the Lord and being warm to him. But I think he's also making a very significant point, which is this. We grow in holiness in the Christian life in just the same way as we were first saved I just say that again because it's so important. We grow in holiness, we grow in the Christian life in just the same way as we were first saved. That is, through believing in Christ, through trusting him. And so what happens is the Spirit opens my eyes to see the love of Christ. And when I see the love of Christ... When I see, oh, so the Lord is actually not this monster I thought he was. He's a kind, a Lord who's loved me. <clears throat> then my heart is one to him. That's how I first become a Christian. My heart is one to him by his love. And that's how I go on being a Christian. As I hear again of his love, my heart is one afresh to him. My first love is renewed. So Sibs believed that the secret of sanctification, of growing in holiness, was 2 Corinthians 3.18. Do you want to flick to it? 2 Corinthians 3.18. He was far from alone in thinking this, but I think it captures it really well. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let me just give you the background of what's going on here. <clears throat> um, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's talking about the time in Exodus where... 
Remember, Moses would go in to be with the Lord and his face would glow, would shine from being with the Lord, right? Do you remember? Then he would go out to be with the people and he would cover his face with a veil. Because out there, it's like they just don't get it. They don't get the purpose of the law. Their minds are veiled. They're not seeing right. But then, when do you get it? It's when anyone turns to the Lord. So he turns to the Lord, goes in to see the Lord. That's when the veil's removed. It's when you turn to the Lord. And so he says, 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is Paul. We all, with unveiled faces, Christians, beholding the glory of the Lord, as Moses beheld the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Yeah? So it is by beholding the glory of the Lord that you are transformed into his image. It is by gazing on Christ that you are transformed into his image. Yeah? That's how you grow to be like him, by contemplating him. So here's um, Sibzi. He says, the very beholding of Christ is a transforming sight. If we look upon him with the eye of faith, it will make us like Christ. For the gospel is a mirror that when we see ourselves interested in it, we're changed from glory to glory. A man cannot look upon the love of God in Christ, in the gospel, but it will change him to be like God and Christ. For how can we see Christ and God in Christ? But we shall see how God hates sin in his purity. And that will transform us to hate it as God does, who hates it so much that it could not be dealt with, expunged, but with the blood of Christ, God man. You see, it is by contemplating Christ by fixing my eyes on him by holding my thoughts on him and as I appreciate him in his purity beauty glory I my taste for him grows and so my distaste for what he hates grows I see he's so kind he's so generous and so I grow in my delight in generosity and kindness. So I I might naturally desire to use you. That's a, a natural desire of mine. I want to use you for my own ends. But when I see how Christ is, his goodness is just so much more attractive than that dirty desire to use you. And so the vision of Christ transforms me not to use you but to be kind to you as Christ is kind to me yeah a guy in the next generation of Puritans was a guy called Thomas Goodwin and Sibs once said to Goodwin he said this and I think if you take nothing else away from this afternoon take this I even come close to saying, if you could take nothing else away from this week, take this. He said to Goodwin, young man, if ever you would do good 
you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, if ever you would do good to yourself, to others, to the world, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Sibs meant that with every fiber of his being. For he saw it is the free grace of God in Christ Jesus that is what first wins the hearts of sinners to God, is what first turns them. And it is the means by which the hearts of sinners continue to be turned from love of sin to a greater love for Christ. And so that's what we are to do for ourselves each day. It's not just advice for preachers, it's advice for every Christian. That we hold up Christ before ourselves. Because don't you know how it is that you find each day, what happens is each day you naturally turn your knowledge of God and you distort it so that God becomes more devilish and you don't delight in him and you just fear him and you want to turn from him. And so every day, every morning, you need to hold up Christ as he is, preach the gospel to yourself again to see how good he is. That's what we do for ourselves. That's what we do for each other. If we can be a people who preach the gospel, the free grace of God in Jesus Christ to ourselves and each other every day, then we'll be a people with hearts one to him more fully. Let's just take one minute now. I just want to take maybe two minutes, a little break. Just talk with your neighbor about what you're picking up so far. Just talk with your neighbor. What are you picking up? What are you learning? What's striking you here? Okay. Does anyone want to feedback? Any particular insights? We don't have to, but if anyone's got some feedback, yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. My my growth in holiness is in is in and through Christ alone, which which is wonderfully simple. And of course, because the Christian life is about knowing Him. Absolutely. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, um, there is something um, similar in orthodoxy, in um, looking upon um, by a look being transformed to greater and greater glory. I think a difference would be um, that in orthodoxy you'll look at, say, an icon, and through that God's glory is supposed to shine through the icon to you. So there's a difference, I think, which is that there are mediators between you and Christ, which is something a little different to Sibs. But I certainly see the similarity of it's, it's gazing on God by which you're transformed into glory, So, which is a Christian insight. Yeah, absolutely. There was one more. Yeah. Let, let me just repeat that because that's a very profound point. I think it was, um, it's very easy to feel... I'm quite cold about sin and simply I ought to turn from certain things, which is very different to what you experience, which is by knowing how kind Christ is and knowing the love of Christ, 
I actually find that sin distasteful now. It's not I merely, I ought to turn from it, but knowing Christ better... Yes. Yeah, exactly. So things that once were appealing to you lose their allure as Christ becomes a greater attraction for you. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, uh, that reminds me of there's, um, a great um, 19th century Scottish um, preacher called Thomas Chalmers who once preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what he meant by that is saying we have affections, desires for things, and you can't simply go through life trying to say, okay, I have a desire for this, so I'll just try to stop it. You won't be able to. The only way to overcome your desire for a wicked thing is to have a stronger desire, which expels it, a desire for Christ. And that's what we cultivate as Christians. Our desire for Christ eclipses and expels other desire as we grow. Yeah. Let me carry on. Let me carry on. What then... What then would it look like for our hearts to be one to Christ? Let's ask that of Sips. What would it look like if our hearts are one to Christ? He says, what will come of it if Christ be set in the highest place in our heart? If we crown him there, and by the way, as we go through this, he's not talking about Christians reaching some state of perfection or anything, but just when we are drawn to desire and love him, Those times, that's what he's talking about. If we crown him there, make him king of kings and lord of lords in a hearty submission, submitting of all the affections, the desires of the soul to him. Well, while the soul continues in that state, it cannot be drawn to sin, discomfort and despair. The honors, pleasures and profits that are got by base, sinful engagements. What are these to Christ? When the soul is rightly possessed of Christ and of his excellency, it disdains, it scorns that anything should come into competition with him. Do you see? When you see the excellency of Christ, other things seem less alluring to you. And if you love him, not only will other distractions from him start losing their appeal but also if you love Christ you will speak of him warmly winsomely and and freely heartily and, and very winningly because Jesus says in Matthew 12 it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and so here's the thing awkward Forced evangelism is done by those who don't love Christ. But those who grow in their love for Christ grow in their enjoyment of Christ. They grow in simply desiring to speak of him. Let's see Sibs again. He says, where love is, there it enlarges the heart which, when that's enlarged, it enlarges the tongue as well. The tongue uh, of the church has never enough of commending Christ and of setting out his praise. The tongue is loosed, set free, because the heart is loosed. Love will alter a man's disposition 
As we see in experience, a man of any sort, a sinful man, love will make him liberal. No, he doesn't mean theologically liberal. He means generous. Love will make him ge- Isn't it a shame that that word has become a purely negative thing in some ways? Liberal is a good way about generosity. Love will make him generous. He that is tongue-tied, it will make him eloquent. Now, if you put any worldly man to a worldly theme that he cares about, he'll speak of it daily. He hath written words at will. E.g., you always talk about what you care about, right? You always do. If you really care about cars, you talk about cars. Yeah? If you love Christ, you'll speak of Christ. So, how do you get to love Christ like that? Again, it is not something you whip up, importantly. It's only when you begin to desire Christ, to love what he loves, you only walk away freely from sin when you see how much he loves you. It's his gracious love that woos you away. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And only then is he more attractive than other things. Let's... um. See a bit more. Christ esteems, loves his church highly, even as his very love, even at that time when she's sleepy. Now, um, okay, just pause there. Uh, I'm actually reading a section from uh, another series of sermons called Bowels Opened. Yes. Uh, Banner of Truth are also bringing this out, but they're retitling it strangely, calling it the, the love of Christ. I'd recommend you get it. But, um, and uh, what, uh, uh, by bowels, sorry, I better explain that. Um, you mean bowels is about desires, bowels of compassion, bowels about desires. So he's opening the desires of Christ for the church and the desires the church has for Christ. And he's thinking here about sort of Revelation 3.20 territory. Do you remember Jesus comes to the sleepy church at Laodicea and says, here I stand at the door and knock. He comes in graciousness to a sleepy church that isn't that bothered about him, and yet he is bothered about her. Isn't that striking? He's bothered about her. Now, that he is like that, that may teach us not to listen to Satan. Because Satan moves us to look upon that which is a failing, that which is naught, that which is nothing in us. And when Satan gets us to do that, it lessens, it abates our love for Christ. And our understanding of his love for us. Satan knows if we sense the love of Christ to us, we will love him again. If a man is in love with Christ, what will be harsh to him in the world? The devil knows this well enough. Therefore, one of the devil's main engines and temptations as the accuser of the brethren is to weaken our hearts in the sense, in the, under, in the appreciation of God's love and of Christ's. That's one of Satan's main engines, to weaken our sense of God's love, to make God look devilish, unloving, ungracious, unkind. This is something you will know every day. You sin, 
And the accuser of the brethren whispers, well, now you've blown it. Sinned once too often. God loved you up to a point, but that is it. Sorry, you're outside God's love now. That is the accuser of the brethren. And absolute blasphemy to the cross of Christ. For Christians are those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And to say that one sin somehow puts me beyond the blood of Christ. Is to say my sin has more power than the blood of Christ. That Christ's cross didn't work. It is devilish blasphemy. But what Sibs is showing us here is it's not enough simply to know or speak the truth. It must be sensed, grasped, enjoyed. Because the thing is, it's very easy to say, yeah, yeah, we know this stuff. That is not the point. There is a vital difference between just knowing something but having gone slightly cold on it and appreciating Christ and his love. So let me show you the sort of thing Sibs would um, say to hold out Christ to win hearts, especially doubting cold hearts. Basically, what he does is he fills our eyes with a vision of Christ's goodness. He says, look, in receiving Christ, do we have any loss here? just, Just pause there. Isn't that what we so often think? If you're to have anything to do with Christ, it's the sacrifice for you, right? You give something up for Christ. So it's primarily a sacrifice. But he says, do we actually entertain Christ to our loss? Does he come empty, needy, grabbing, taking from us? No. He comes with all grace. His goodness is a communicative, diffusive goodness. He comes to spread his treasures, to enrich the heart with all grace and strength, to bear all afflictions, to encounter all dangers, to bring peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost. He comes indeed to make our hearts as it were a heaven. Now consider this. He comes not for his own ends, but to empty his goodness into our hearts. As a breast that desires to empty itself when it's full, so this fountain hath the fullness of a fountain which strives to empty its goodness into our souls. He comes out of love to us. I was just chatting with um, a good friend earlier today, and... um, this issue came up pastorally as we were chatting. And um, this friend is a good Christian mate. And he, and he was saying, I love Christ, but I love being comfortable too. And so I know in my decisions in life, I'm quite hampered by the fact that I'm thinking, well, I don't want to make a, a sacrifice of those things that make me comfortable because I just love them so much. Do you see what he's doing? He's thinking that Christ makes us a loser. But Christ does not come to bring us loss. And so you do not actually ultimately give up anything for Christ. It may seem for a time as if you do. But in my friend holding on to these worldly comforts and knowing they restrain him from following Christ, actually those are joy-sucking shackles for him. And if he can trust Christ... 
Christ is offering him joy, the delight of knowing him better, uh, a relationship which is life, peace. We need to know in these hard decisions, Christ is kind. He doesn't come to take from us, but to give to us. Now, where is all this coming from in Sibs? What's driving this theology? I mean, because Sibs is so sunny, isn't he? Yeah? He's so, he's so warm. This gospel is so attractive. Now, why is that? Well, it all comes back to what he thinks the gospel essentially is. You see, he didn't think that the gospel is essentially just about a ruler having mercy on us. Now, he sees Christianity is about the love story in which Christ, the bridegroom, comes to win his bride, the church. There's something we were seeing yesterday, a massive change from medieval Roman Catholicism. We have a distant God dripping down grace distantly on us. But when you see the Lord as the bridegroom who comes to his beloved bride... Suddenly you've got a much warmer gospel, a very different sort of gospel. And so Sib said, let us often think of this nearness between Christ and us, if we've once given our names to him, and be not discouraged for any sin or unworthiness in us. He says, who sues a wife for debt when she's married? Therefore, when the accuser of the brethren comes... Answer all accusations like this. Go to Christ. If you have anything to say to me, go to my husband. Isn't that good? It's because of the, the wedding vows. All I am, the bridegroom says to the bride, all I am, I give to you, all I have, I share with you. So, actually, we send the accuser of the brethren to Christ. He goes on, unpacks it more. He says, often think with yourself, what am I? I am a poor, sinful creature, but I have a righteousness in Christ, my husband, the church's husband, that answers all. I'm weak in myself, but Christ is strong, and I'm strong in him. I'm foolish in myself, but I'm wise in him. And what I lack in myself, I have in him. He is mine, and his righteousness is mine. Know that. As a sinful, failing Christian, his righteousness is mine. And being clothed with this, I stand safe against conscience, hell, wrath, and whatsoever. And though I have daily experience of my sins, yet there is more righteousness in Christ who is mine and who is the chief of 10,000 than there is sin in me. What a great response! to the whisperings of Satan. Go away. There is more righteousness in Christ to his mind than there is sin in me. I am sinful, yet his righteousness is mine. Great, great assurance. But more. Think, what does, just picture a wedding scene or a, perfect couple 
married. What is it that a perfect, loving bridegroom husband wants for his bride? I'm not thinking about a cruel, needy, selfish man, but a perfectly loving husband. What does a perfectly loving husband want for his wife? What pleases Christ is where I'm going with it. Well, Sib says, and get this. He says, we cannot please Christ better than showing ourselves welcome. By cheerful taking part of his rich provision, he's seeing that the gospel is a banquet that we're to enjoy. And it is an honor to his graciousness, his bounty, to fall to, tuck in. That's what he wants. He's delighted to give to us. It is the temper of spirit that a Christian aims at to rejoice, to enjoy, always in the Lord. And that rejoicing always comes from enjoying our privileges in him. Our duty is to accept Christ's inviting us. What will we do for him if we'll not feast with him? Listen to this next bit. We will not suffer with him if we will not feast with him. Now, just pause there. I think we often talk about, and this is right to do, that the Christian life is suffering now, glory later. Absolutely true. There's a life of suffering now with glory to come. We will suffer with Christ. But Sibs is saying, actually, we won't suffer with him if we won't feast with him. I won't suffer for Christ if I don't enjoy him, if I don't love him. So I won't even do the suffering bit. So actually, the love, the feasting, the enjoyment has to come first. We will not suffer with him if we will not joy with him and in him. That which we should labor to bring with us is a taste of these dainties of the gospel, these delicious courses of the gospel banquet, an appetite to them. The chief thing that Christ requires is a good stomach to these dainties. Do you see? It's about taking in Christ's goodness, receiving, feeding on them. So he says, let us open our mouth wide, since Christ is so ready to fill it. There you go. Oh, another cream cake of graciousness. <laughs> we are not constrained in his love, but in our own hearts. We're bidden to delight in the Lord, and in whom should we delight, but where all fullness is to be had to delight in? Our spirits, my friends, are not so large as those blessed comforts which we are called to enjoy. Do you see? He has more grace than I have appetite for grace. Don't think he has less grace than you need. I don't think I can exaggerate the importance of Sibs' message for today. Our Christian busyness and activism so easily degenerate into a hypocrisy in which you can keep up all the appearance of holiness without the heart of it. And what we can do is we can bludgeon each other into a sort of hollow Christianity of performance. And we can use, especially if you're a Bible study group leader in any form of ministry, you can use 
Christ just as a package to pass on to others rather than enjoying him first and foremost as your own savior. But true reformation must begin in the heart with love for Christ. He loves us and wins our heart to love him. It is only then that reformation will come in the heart. And that reformation in the heart can only come when the free grace of God in Christ Jesus is proclaimed. So friends, if ever you would do good, preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Our great God, the fountain of every blessing, you stun us with your graciousness, your kindness, and daily we imagine you cannot be so good. I pray, would you help us to be a people who preach to ourselves, to each other, to the world, free grace of God in your son, Jesus Christ, so that our hearts might be constantly drawn to you, such that our love for you might eclipse our love for other things. And so I pray, might we see reformations in our hearts every day and reformation in our country, in our land today, as hearts are drawn to you and out of the overflow of their hearts, people speak of you warmly, full of love, And so may many see you not as a cold, dark tyrant, but as the Lord of graciousness and be won to you by your kindness. All glory to you, great, kind Lord, in your great son's name. Amen. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House Oxford invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of union and support our ministry, visit www.viola.gy.